I'm welcoming today Yashim Arat from Wazichi University. She's a professor in political science and international relations and is publishing a book forthcoming with Cambridge University Press and co-authored with Shevkat Pamuk that is called Turkey Since 1980s. Um, so Yashim, it's great to have you here, especially since I think the, the themes that we're going to talk about today are actually not just limited to Turkey, but they really are they're reflected across the globe at the moment. So um, so welcome. And the first thing I wanted to, to discuss with you is to give us a bit of an overview of Turkey since the 1980s, or if you want to go back a bit before that. But how has Turkey changed? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, first, thank you for inviting me uh, here and to this show. It's wonderful to be with you and sharing my thoughts with, uh, with you. Well, uh, in 1980, Turkey had a very important and consequential, all coups are consequential, of course, but uh, violent uh, coup, military coup. And after the coup, many things changed. Turkey began to be more part of the world uh, internationally. There were these economic reforms undertaking uh, to make Turkey part of this globalization process, uh, neoliberal policies uh, economically, uh, and some liberalizing of the constitution uh, and attempts at democratization, uh, which basically uh, challenged the more restrictive constitution that was put into effect after the uh, military coup, uh, and bargaining of uh, civil society institutions, women, uh, environmentalists, Islamists, Kurds, there was the Kurdish uh, revolt after 1980, which was very important and most important challenge to uh, democratization of the country. The military tried to uh, restructure the country, create a tabula rasa and restructure the country uh, with a you know, more majoritarian constitution, restrictive of rights compared to the earlier constitution uh, that we had 1961, which also was uh, done in the aftermath of a military coup and which also had its problems because it was a coup-led uh, constitution. Civil rights were more um, expansive in the earlier constitution, whereas after 1980, in the 1982 constitution, they were uh, more restrictive. And the 1982 constitution tried to use Islam as a buffer against leftism. Not that, you know, it was a big thing in the 80s, but that's what the uh, military uh, officers who led the coup judged had been the case with Turkey, Turkey's problems, because before the coup there had been this confrontation between the left and the, and the nationalist uh, extremist rightist groups. Uh, so uh, there was also this, you know, uh, courses on religion becoming required courses and put into the constitution. In the public things. schools? In the public okay. uh, Well, in all schools, national education system okay. basically okay. covers all schools. Um, so Turkey applied uh, to EU in 87 and wanted to become part of the EU and, you know, or was eventually in 1999 eligible, became eligible for being a candidate uh, if it filled the other EU uh, criteria. 
uh, mostly concerning uh, civil liberties as well as, of course, other things. Um, so these were some of the important changes. And ultimately, by 2000s, a Islamist-rooted government came to power, quite successful, democratizing the country in the first um, uh, term they were in power. However, by the end of the first uh, uh, term, uh, things began to change. And uh, by 2018, we had a new political regime. The parliamentary system in Turkey was changed to a presidential system, but it was not any type of presidentialism. It was an authoritarian presidentialism where there was no separation of powers, really. So if I'm hearing the, the sort of some of the major changes that were taking place, one was the economic liberalization and a change in the economic regime itself, right, which was being coupled with, and I think you talk about this in your book, changes in urbanization and other kinds of pressures. Mm -hmm. um, the second was the increasing space for Islamists and the mm -hmm. role that religion was going to play both in education and in the schools, which if you think about it was quite a change from especially the kind of very Western mm. sort of secularization that, that Ataturk had founded the country in, in, in the 1920s, right? So we were, we're seeing a real shift in the role of, of Islam. Um, and the third, which I think you've hinted at in some ways, which is this question about the role of the military, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, it plays a very strong role, obviously, in the beginning of the 1980s and mm -hmm. and in sort of reshaping the country and trying to create the balance right that, and and define sort of what Turkey is um, and then they will get sidelined by the time we get to the 2018 you know reconfiguration of the political system they really mm -hmm. get quite sidelined from what they were in the, in the beginning absolutely so, yeah. it really uh, is very important I mean restrictions on the rights of the military uh, began under EU equity. And mm. so first, uh, in the late 1999, the coalition government began restricting what the military could do because the constitution, the military uh, had commissioned, guaranteed um, um, an important role to the military to intervene in politics. There was the National Security Council and um, high-level generals would be members of this council and uh, some prime minister and some ministers, a uh, few ministers, but the military was in the majority and um, the kind of um, uh, advice, the National Security Council, where the military top generals are in majority uh, would have to be given uh, priority by the politically elected governments. So, you know, anything that that particular council where military officers dictated would have to basically be enacted. Uh, that was uh, circumscribed in uh, 1999, began to be circumscribed. So uh, that process continued during AKP's Islamically Rooted um, Justice and Development Party. Uh, the acronym in Turkish is AKP. That tr uh, trend continued during their first term in power. Uh, so the ratio of uh, people in the National Security Council changed. The civilians got the upper hand, and you know the advice they they gave uh, wasn't going to be as important as before. So you know uh, the military began to be contained uh, thanks to the EU equity and to. The aspiration of, of Turkish people to be part of the EU. But things got out of hand during the AKP 
era. And in fact, um, one of the very critical uh, incidences uh, that triggered uh, this decline of democracy in uh, Turkey under uh, the Islamically rooted uh, AKP governments was uh, this attempt to keep the military from intervening in politics, which was a very appropriate mm-hmm. attempt at the time. It really was, uh, because the military, uh, together with other secularist um, groups that were backing the military, um, judiciary and civil society organizations and political party, one of the biggest contenders for power, Republican People's Party. Uh, I mean, they all tried to limit the power of the AKP, uh, but in order to uh, prevent or preempt uh, military intervention into what they could do, what they should be doing, AKP uh, collaborated uh, with another Islamic group, the Gulen community, and together they went through this process, I'm going to say, using the judiciary to basically marginalize the military. And the Gulenist uh, prosecutors and judges opened these law cases against the military with uh, fabricated uh, evidence, really, and basically accused the military of planning a coup to topple the government again. The first case... Took place when? uh, It took place in uh, 2007, Mm -hmm. began in 2007, and it was resolved in 2013. Uh, something like 300 uh, people. Actually, there were others besides the military. The Sledgehammer case, the case that came after the Ergenekon case, which began in 2010, the verdict was given in 2013. That was specifically uh, the military. Uh, but, you know, the chief of general staff uh, was imprisoned. And, I mean, all these verdicts were given, prisoning these officers and basically allowing the two groups to replace their um, man that had uh, began him getting into the uh, military institutions through again, basically stealing exams and things like that. Mm. So, you know, uh, a subterfuge was used. Uh, I wish that military power could have been curtailed merely uh, using uh, more transparent laws, like um, the kind of laws that EU sort of dictated we should have. Uh, but unfortunately, this particularly these two sham trials that did lead the military to uh, be to be enervated uh, uh, were also undermining the whole judicial system because this fabricated evidence was being used and basically blind witnesses were being brought in and a lot of different types of counterfeit uh, in these trials, which uh, brought down the military and brought down the judiciary because it was it became involved with this uh, process. Did it bring down the judiciary or had the judiciary also been changing before that? It, it, was there a way in which Erdogan or, and the AKP government was changing the judiciary and as I understand it, also the media before <coughs> that? Does, it, mm-hmm. does that? Is that the case? Yeah, well, that's true, actually. I mean, Gulenists Islamist group began getting into the judiciary in late 1980s, 1990s, but with AKP, there was this coalition between them, and the whole process 
was expanded, deepened. So there, there had been a process that was uh, going down. And pro-AKP judges and prosecutors began coming to important positions during AKP. Uh, but you know, the process had begun earlier. And the process continued uh, during AKP's term, taking different terms, um, depending on the kind of uh, relations AKP had with the Gulen coalition. The coalition broke mm-hmm. down. After the coalition broke down, AKP totally purged the Gulen. Purged the Gulen, right? yes. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, total yeah. uh, dismissal, ignoring the uh, rule of law regarding who should be appointed, how there should be appointments. You know, there were um, uh, laws and regulations before. Um, so I think, you know, that was a very um, important development. And as far as media is concerned, AKP, of course, was very crucial uh, in bringing censure to media, in changing the ownership of media. Secular media began going after the Islamists, uh, for example, using illegal uh, use of funds and began criticizing the government for corruption uh, in its first term in power. Erdogan, uh, personally, did not like this, and basically the media group that brought out these cases of corruption was immediately punished, and there was a tax evasion case that was brought up against them, one that could be interpreted as a non-issue mm-hmm. uh, by uh, quite uh, important jurists. But, you know, they used this tax evasion interpretation in order to break down uh, the hold of the secular media and they, in order to pay the tax bill, the media group, Doan group, had to sell the most important dailies that it had. And here, of course, the economic relationships that this group had with the state, of course, was a major weakness of of the secular uh, media group. And that was exploited very successfully by uh, the AKP and the business groups uh, that were close to AKP were were made to buy this uh, newspaper and gradually uh, other newspapers you know went through similar processes and you know the secular media basically crumbled right, right. Um, during this period yeah just to, I want to step back for one second to think about the difference between the Gulenists and the AKP, or to have you describe briefly those two groups, because I think for a lot of people, Islamists are Islamists, and they'll sort of lump <laughs> them all together. And so when you say the coalition between them, and then we think about the breakdown of that coalition sort of more recently, uh-huh. um, I think that that might be hard to, for people to, to make sense That's of. That's true. So, That's yeah. true. But it's hard for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, because, well, it's hard for everybody for one thing. The Gulen group is not as transparent. They come from different Islamist uh, groups. Uh, one of them has more Naqshbandi uh, background. They're both Sunni, but one of them has more Naqshbandi uh, background. That is AKP. AKP. And the Gulenists come from this tradition of Nur group. They're more introverted as a group, independent of what um, their leadership has preached. Uh, they were a group that were taught to remain in good relations with the state, and they did not want to make themselves transparent or uh, have a political party mm-hmm. or be visible in politics. 
they uh, opted for developing their relationships and empowering themselves uh, basically through business, invested a lot of uh, money in education. They wanted a very good secular educational schools and recruit the, the graduates of these schools within their group and then place these educated people into state institutions as affiliates, as people who were devoted uh, to this religious group. They had these boarding houses, uh, they had these lighthouses uh, where they tried to um, uh, socialize these students into their precepts and have this uh, particular Islamic culture inculcated to them and become these civil servants of the state. Uh, they were more nationalistic in that, uh, more, you know, Kemalist nationalistic, I should say, more uh, unitary nationalism, like their relationship with the Kurds was more uh, distant, skeptical. Okay. They weren't in favor of uh, acknowledging uh, Kurdish rights. Whereas AKP had this Nakshi backgrounds, perhaps similar to the Muslim Brotherhood, but of course not violent. They wanted to get hold of politics and bring their ideology uh, into power through uh, political parties, political system, work through the political system. There were political parties that began to be founded in the uh, 70s, 1970-71, after the 1961 uh, constitution allowed uh, for uh, the opening of a wider spectrum of political parties, both on the left, nationalist right, and Islamist right, were allowed to have in Turkey uh, political parties that could express uh, more religious views. And so, you know, unlike the Gülenists, uh, the AKP uh, came uh, from that tradition of the Islamic movement that prioritized working through the political mm. system. I think, you know, they were still broadly part of a larger Islamic uh, movement in the country uh, because there were other, there are other Islamist groups, tariqats, um, and they constitute a large uh, segment uh, of the population. And this goes back uh, to Ottoman times and to early uh, republic and the Islamic movement has been a reality that the founders of the republic uh, had to deal with when they were secularizing the country. But when the founders <clears> of the <throat> republic dealt with them in the early period, and, and I'm, uh, I, I want to sort of get your take on how late that lasted. I mean, as I understood it, it was largely to try to repress them, right? It was yeah, to you know, say, you don't wear headscarves in public, you don't have beards, you wear Western dress, you take last names. I mean, there was a, a real attempt at Westernization, and Westernization was in some ways equated with secularization, as, Absolute, I, as I see that. Absolutely. Yeah. Secularism was the biggest, was the most important mission of the founding fathers, most important reform they brought, women's rights. Of course, that was another important development uh, that the Republic, that helped the Republic uh, beat the Islamists who didn't want to extend these uh, Islamic rights. Civil code, I mean, the civil code came um, despite the Islamists and who did not, who didn't want to give up the Sharia uh, law. Mm, so 
uh, clearly secularism was the big um, success of uh, the founding fathers and it did come with uh, repression of the uh, Islamist groups and it was a tug of war. But of course, um, one should keep in mind that this came, this particular repression um, came uh, after a independence war. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, during this war, or pra- before this war, I mean, Turkey was um, uh, occupied by Allied powers. And so all the country was occupied. You know, the Ottoman Sultan was under control of the British. So you had to give this big uh, independence war, and it was the leaders of the independence wars, the, uh, the people who had successfully cleared the country, quote-unquote, from the enemy. And the enemy was Christian enemy. (laughs) And so it did not mean for the founders of the republic and the people who basically won the war of independence, you know, all Islam would be (laughs) under control of those who had invaded the country. (laughs) When you look at it from that perspective, at least it was secularism that the successful founders had owned up and had thought was what was best for the country. And at that time, there was a logic to these founders, the secularists, for thinking that there was a, um, I mean, there was need for secularism, independent of what these Islamist groups were saying, for Turkey's existence. Because the Ottomans had tried. Uh, Islamism as a way to hold the country together and it did not work and Turkism was tried and you know cosmopolitanism I mean so one viable way of keeping a independent republic at the time uh, was you know becoming a western style secular national I mean, what other alternative empires were all coming down? So, you know, nationalism happened to be, again, a sort of an only alternative. Yes, they went to extremes with both of these. Or over time, they should have these two doctrines of the founding fathers should have been adjusted to the conditions, to democratization, accommodated without all the Republican institutions having to crumble. But I think if there was a problem, there there was a problem there. Otherwise, you know, at that time, okay, let's not repress, but then you're not going to have the secularism. You're again going to not have Islamism work for you. I mean, I don't want to rationalize for the Kemalists, but, you know, there was some kind of logic to it, which needs to be recognized when we're, you know, going into the licit comparison between uh, those two uh, terms. Um, but they are interesting, right? Because the, the, the early period was a period of a struggle against we're falling apart and we've been mm. defeated. And I mean, the, the Ottoman Empire had been one of the major <coughs> empires and had been quite the threat to the West, right? And suddenly it finds itself disintegrated. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and the take which, you know, Ataturk took, it was also, we, we, saw, it, we saw it later with Bourguiba in Tunisia, we see it across the region at times, was to say, okay, let's be secular, Western, um, you know, sort of Western looking and Western oriented and take on those. But it also did come, as I understand it, with the kind of the repression of Kurdish and, and other minorities, right? Oh, so yeah. there was very much a notion that, that there was sort of one form of 
being Turkish. Absolutely. And, that, and the idea was to create that level of conformity, etc. Um, so when I when I look at, at, at Turkey today, I wonder, you know, in some ways how that does compare is what's happening mm-hmm. that there is that same notion of threat and therefore project um, that is being taken or what is the difference between those periods how uh-huh. do you how do you describe that no that's very interesting because yeah definitely there was a repression in the early period and now definitely we have um, a repression in Turkey I think the comparison needs to be made more seriously than uh, I will just speculate right now. So mine will be just a speculation. I think um, it needs to be done more uh, seriously because during the earlier periods, nature of repression changed as well. I mean, during the single party period, which began from 1923 uh, and lasted till 1950, when Turkey moved to multi-party period, there was a certain type. And even within the 1923 founding of the Republic and 50, during Atatürk's time, there was some a certain type. During the very first 10 year dec- or the first decade, there was a certain type. I mean, especially against the Kurds, there was a lot of repression um, when the Republic was founded and the Kurdish revolts were very violently uh, suppressed uh, during this period um, before Atatürk died. And after Atatürk died, repression took different turns. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it needs, well, you know, we exactly. need to do a more sophisticated um, comparison. But just looking at it from afar without uh, those uh, uh, tools and without doing that sort of work, I think uh, one major uh, um, uh, difference that strikes me is uh, the lack of rule of law in today's uh, Turkey. I mean, there's really no rule of law. I mean, before the 70s, uh, uh, 80s, 90s, uh, I mean, you sort of knew when you were going to get into trouble or who would get into trouble <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, who would get into trouble for doing what if you wore headscarves to school, uh, you'd get into trouble. But those of us who defended the headscarf uh, did not get into trouble. Uh, And, you know, the the kids did. In many schools, they did. But then in other schools, they did not. In my university, they did not. Uh, Well, this might be interpreted as, well, what kind of rule (laughs) of law are you talking about? (laughs) There were differences. But what I'm saying is the implementation of those uh, restrictive um, liberties was also not not as harsh is Mm -hmm. uh, the point. Um, But, I mean, today... Uh, really, we don't know anything, anything and anyone can get into trouble and taken into detention uh, in the middle of the night for terrorist activism and undermining uh, the state. The state. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you just get and then they, they're taken in and then put into prison uh, for a year without any prosecutor putting down an indictment against them. What is the charge? You don't never learn. And, you know, they're just kept in prison. And, you know, thousands of people are like that uh, right now. So I think this very personalistic and, um, you know, nature of authoritarianism now is also very destabilizing. And I think there's much more wear and tear 
in institutions, there's an institutional where yeah. there in as as this more personistic rule is being built, and the institutions are eroding. Uh, yes, we have a very powerful president. Erdogan is a very powerful president, but you know the parliament has deteriorated. It's under basically under his control, and you know the judiciary is also. I mean, independent ju- uh, judiciary is nowhere to be found. You might have followed it. I mean, European Court of Human Rights was negotiating with Turkey in giving some uh, credits, and they they said that Turkey should let uh, the co-leader of the uh, pro-Kurdish um, political party, which is the third third largest political party after AKP and the Republican People's Party (JHP), uh, the uh, HDP is the third largest political party in Turkey. And the co-leader or, or leaders, or, or Selahattin Demirtas, should be released uh, because the court uh, found that his uh, political rights had been violated. And so, you know, what comes, and the response from Turkey, from the president himself, well, let them say so. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't detain right. us. You know, um, so this is really, there is really no uh, judiciary left to say, well, look, you know, this is, the guy is in prison and there is a law case against him. Uh, and, you know, the president of the country should not intervene in what the judiciary is doing and should not, you know, basically should follow the constitution. No, nothing like that. I mean, constitution is ignored every day, and and so this um, institutional decay and lack of rule of law, uh, I think, is a difference between those two terms. I mean, you know, the judiciary was never liberal, but there was a judiciary. I mean, the presidents or the prime ministers didn't fund the ju- judges um, so that they would, right. you know, <laughs> give, the, give their, their opinions. Ra- yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, I'm not trying to justify or legitimize what was before. I do think that they gave a very restrictive, uh, perhaps lawful, but very restrictive judgments on Islamists and uh, the Kurds. I mean, Kurdish parties, Islamist parties were closed down in 1990s. So many Kurdish parties. And then, you know, the predecessors of the AKP, they were just closed one by one. Um, so which which I think were just very problematic, very wrong. Uh, but there was there was more. It was according to their laws that, you know, that they followed, uh, not to justify not to sort of, it, yeah. but, uh, you know, it was wasn't different. arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And actually was thinking about it. I mean, one of the things that that in my view, is a big change, right, is that the role of the military had declined, right? So, yeah. you know, that, that we think, of, of course, of civilian control over the military as being something that's a democratizing force and is about democratization. In Turkey, it's actually ended up being a, a force that is, if it hasn't changed that it's authoritarian and authoritarian, it's certainly changed the nature of it, right? Yeah. Um, and partly, I think, because in Turkey, the military, even when it had sort of the background seat and, you know, it came in to correct things through Clues, but otherwise it it stood in the sort of the shadows and and kept things under control it wanted to have the institutions there to to play a role right? yeah 
without yeah, the military definitely. interested in, in, in without the sort of the political powers that are sort of most powerful interested in playing a background role, but rather being in the foreground, then mm -hmm. suddenly institutions don't play that role anymore. Absolutely. Right? You know, they've lost that, Absolutely. that sense of meaning. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's ironic because, you know, you want the institutions to be uh, independent and do things on their own. But um, no. No, exactly. <laughs> no. Exactly. Uh -huh. That's of course, that might have something to do with the kind of tutelary democracy we had and the military tutelage over them. Right. So, I mean, there might be a chicken and egg relationship. That's why the institutions never grew to be really independent. independent and, and also more, I mean, develop, mature over time, become more accommodating over time, have their own... Uh, you know, be influenced by changes in the society. I mean, you know, judiciaries are supposed to change too. They're not supposed to be sitting there. So, you know, there's this you know, Kurdish default and Islamists, they want the recognition of the headscarves and the others want some kind of autonomy and recognition of Kurdish. I mean, so, you know, the judiciaries get to uh, be influenced by these societal changes and, you know, make arbitrations and give and reflect the society absolutely right, right so you know you couldn't have that with that military tutelage right. over them right so you know they were stronger but they were constrained right yeah. and then when you when you lose that the uh -huh. sort of powers behind them then you see them as yeah as very very weak uh -huh. right? you know the other thing that you see and that turkey is a great example of is that you know these are not necessarily linear progressions right and we sort uh -huh. of i think we all know that today but we for for a very long time there has been a notion that things become more democratic and then you know and that sort of there's an end point to it right modernization theory is a great example of yeah. that type of that type of an understanding mm -hmm. um and what we see in in the turkish case is like you said these periods where there's you know kind of more liberties more open up more sort of political space and you can call it liberalization and not democratization but mm. certainly it, it affects people's lives right and so to that yeah. extent I think we we definitely care what what form it takes uh -huh. um, so I want to know you know the interesting thing is this change from Western secular orientation toward it towards an Islamist orientation um, how do we understand the forces that made that possible? You and Shevkat talk about urbanization and sort of the liberal economic sphere mm -hmm. as being an important force for that. Can you say a little bit more about why mm -hmm. we saw the support for Islamists and why the secularists were not able to sort of capture that same momentum and, and mobilize those those supporters? Mm -hmm. Sure. It's, uh, of course, a very important question. And there are, I think, many reasons why this particular change, this particular tra major transformation in Turkey, you know, paradigmatic transformation in Turkey took place. One of the starting points is, I think, uh, urbanization or the issue of migration from the rural areas to the urban areas and the inability of the national governments uh, to respond to the needs of these newly migrated uh, citizens. I mean, in this migration, of course, began in Turkey earlier than 1980. It began in 1950s. And in 1950s, Turkey was a predominantly a uh, rural uh, country, about 18% uh, was in urban areas. By 1980, something like 45% of the population lived in urban areas. 
And by 2015 or so, we have um, 80% living in urban. Uh, so the ratio has really changed. And um, so there is this important transformation. And uh, Turkey had this centralized national government. It wasn't a federal system. And um, the national governments weren't able to take care of these uh, migrant groups' needs. I mean, these migrant groups needed, needed houses, needed jobs, needed education, needed schools. And they could not all the way from the central position they were in respond to these. The municipalities were, uh, local governments were expected to respond to these needs. But then local governments weren't endowed with the funds and with the tools to be able Mm -hmm. to do so. After 1980, when um, the center-right, secular center-right government uh, Motherland Party, ANAP, came to power. Uh, one of the things that they did early on, 87, uh, was change uh, this relationship uh, between the central government and the local governments. And they gave more um, power to local municipalities. And local governments um, uh, began to get taxes, um, a higher share of taxes, local uh, land taxes, uh, and they began to have more autonomy about land use. You see, in Turkey, basically coming all the way from Ottoman times onwards, buildings and gardens belonging to individuals were registered as private property, mm-hmm. but anything outside that was mm, state property, state uh, land. And so many of the migrants basically were settling using these state lands and building squatter houses on these state lands. And um, so the municipalities began to have power over what to do with these um, state lands and changing zones, uh, building permits, uh, and uh, they uh, were equipped to do much more locally. Uh, I mean, yes, there was co- corruption coming along with, you know, this localization and all, but still, 87 law were, was important. And I think uh, the AKP governments used this um, opportunity that the municipal, new municipal law uh, gave uh, for getting into power in local governments and using uh, th- those resources, working very hard. Uh, you know, Islamist-rooted governments, uh, parties, always worked very hard. I mean, at least since the um, 80s onwards. Uh, well, 80s, you know, they weren't uh, 83, yeah. 84, 5 uh, onwards. They earned uh, political power, um, I think, when they were coming to power with their with hard work, and they deserved it. And so, you know, in, in municipalities, uh, they uh, they were very good at responding to the needs of people living in these outer areas of uh, urban cities and urban places, and they were able to meet um, the needs of the people who lived in these uh, areas, and uh, that became an important power base uh, for the uh, Islamist uh, political parties. Uh, and. Um, uh, more radical during the predecessor of AKP and uh, more integrated into the economy through AKP. 
So on the economic side, I think uh, this broader globalization the 80s brought, the neoliberal policies that 1980s brought, the political parties ANAP uh, that came to power after the coup basically implemented these neoliberal uh, policies uh, with a vengeance uh, very earnestly and export-oriented export subsidies, export-oriented growth. Uh, and, you know, it was during this phase that a local pious bourgeoisie could have the opportunity space where it could develop. Because, you know, uh, basically, Turkish bourgeoisie well, had long been quite dependent on the state. And, you know, with this new context, the local bourgeoisie in more, um, you know, peripheral areas of the country could begin to exploit its laborers, of course, but could begin to trade and um, could begin to um, export well, they had a comparative advantage because they exploited the local working groups uh, and the military uh, constitution uh, did not definitely did not encourage uh, a labor union, formation of labor unions, and to the contrary, it restricted their rights compared to the earlier 1960 constitution. So, you know, under these conditions, you could have an alternate pious bourgeoisie evolve. And this particular bourgeoisie ended up wanting to trade with Europe more. Europe had rule of law uh, in the peripheral regions, close to the Middle East. I mean, Middle East was a hectic place and you didn't have rule <laughs> of law. It still is, actually. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> We're now more part of it, of course. But, you know, these groups, these emerging bourgeoisie, at the particular point in time where they had um, gained enough uh, profits and they wanted to expand uh, to those regions where there was rule of law, where there was a serious judicial mm -hmm. process, where, you know, the market was competitive and they, it expected right. better products, but then they could produce the better products by that time. They could be more uh, competitive. And so I think, you know, that group was behind AKP and that group was able to support AKP's wish to, you know, hold on to power, move from the municipalities after the good job they had done to the center and, you know, get uh, power at the center. At the same time, basically not undermining the secular republic because uh, their uh, critical constituency, uh, the pious businessmen who were able to support them economically, support AKP economically as well, uh, wanted the EU. And so I think there was a good threat at that point in time because before things began crumbling down. Two things that you're saying that I think are really important here. One is that that tie between the sort of the secularists and the state, the secular business and the state, which led to them sort of being a bit less able to capitalize on sort of the new, the new, the new economic opportunities that would exist in some of these municipalities, right? So that can help, I think, explain why the Islamist and the Islamist-oriented bourgeoisie arises at that time. Mm -hmm. But the second is this question about the role that Europe played in the Europeans. Um, and there, I think, we can... I'd like to dig into that a little bit more, right? Because there is that, you've mentioned it earlier on and you're mentioning it now, the importance of the European Union 
in terms of providing both carrots, right, mm. and in and you know, sort of the suggestion that the military should step back, mm-hmm. and a lot of other ways in which, in especially in the mid nineteen nineties, when it still looked like there could be that process could succeed, um, that it gave a lot of incentives to, to the changes. Um, and then, of course, the process doesn't succeed, right? <laughs> and, no. and so I want to get your, your take on the, the extent to which that process and the sort of the relationship with Europe has been a major factor in understanding the changes in, in Turkey. Well, that's true. I mean, you, you was a major actor. And, well, first the French um, decided that even if Turkey fulfilled all the requirements of the ICU, uh, they would take the uh, inclusion of Turkey into a public referendum. Right. <laughs> and, that, and Germans never really wanted Turkey anyway. They always had wanted to have this special relationship with Turkey. And so after that, gradually the impetus um, for uh, taking the EU seriously eroded. But I mean, I don't want to uh, begin by, um, you know, putting too much of the blame on the EU or, or, you know, it is true that it was a very important opportunity for us to democratize the country. But ultimately, I think the local dynamics Uh, and um, local conditions, coalitions, structural factors, uh, and local economic forces were um, more crucial in bringing down democracy and, uh, you know, precipitating, backsliding uh, of the democratic process in Turkey. So you think it's more local than than international? I mean, there were very important international factors shaping the dynamics, uh, including this, uh, as I said, the emergence of a pious, independent, um, local bourgeoisie, besides the secular bourgeoisie, one that could give support to the political empowerment of AKP. So, I mean, even that was part of that EU enlargement uh, process, or at least had a lot to do with it. I think, you know, the point of backsliding, um, I mean, surely had the process been been going, it might not have been that easy. But there were so many other factors from the, you know, weaknesses of the opposition to the... uh, the structural factors, institutional weaknesses, uh, and um, the, the success of the Erdogan to pursue power, and the kind of you know the kind of mistrust and this you know inability to exist together, all sorts of right. local factors, uh, were very important. I think I want to I want to end by thinking just a little bit about if there's lessons from Turkey for thinking about the backsliding that we might be seeing, sort of more more globally at the moment, right? Uh-huh. I mean, it's not the only place where we're seeing these kinds of Absolutely. retrenchments and repressions. And and there's a question as to, you know, uh-huh. do you see similarities? Do you see lessons to be uh-huh. taken from Turkey? Which, you know, arguably was on the forefront of this, uh-huh. of this trend yeah. um, to other places. I mean, I think this is a very important question. I mean, this process of um, globalization had a very interesting effect, different than the one in um, America. It allowed AKP to come to power. Uh, it allowed the uh, bourgeoisie uh, that could support AKP to emerge. Mm-hmm. Uh, this 
process of globalization and opening up neoliberalism. And you know, we didn't have the we didn't have the haves and the have-nots and those white men who had to lose jobs uh, in this process of globalization and who understandably resented. Right. Uh, the kind of predicament this particular uh, process imposed upon them. We didn't have that, but we had that same process work in a different way uh, to bring down ultimately a decline of democracy. So it works in different ways, but I think these broad processes and you know institutional weaknesses. Yeah. The judiciary in Turkey, because of its in- institutional weaknesses, could easily come down. In the States, they're still working at it. Uh, and it might, you know, if there are a few other judges that are replaced. So the, the nature of the institutional strengths in all these countries, I think these might be another factor having implications in these different uh, countries. But I think it's a very important question. Uh, sh- surely there's at one level, to, I don't know how important it is. It's not as important probably as this issue of the implications, the different implications of globalization, different ins- implications of institutional weaknesses and uh, different uh, impl- implications of coalitions that come up under these circumstances. But, you know, when um, Trump says the things that he says, well, Erdogan comes and says the things that he says. Right. I mean, they reinforce one another. It becomes legitimate. I mean, this becomes the norm. That's how norms change. And civility is also a very important part of democracy because it has a lot to do with, you know, being liberal, being able to accommodate the other, the different uh, whatever. So that particular civil culture and civility erodes when there are all these illiberal uh, leaders speaking out and creating a different culture. Yeah, and, and it's linked, I think, to one last thing that I would, would add to your to your list, which is, you know, it's not just the judiciary and the media, but the lack of political parties, right? So, oh, absolutely. You know, so in, in, yes, yes, the AKP is strong, but the other political parties yes. in Turkey are weak, and, Very. and frankly, I mean, if we're looking at the U.S., which is what I know best, then, you know, both the Democratic and Republican parties have essentially really eroded in terms of their institutional strengths, right? Absolutely. And, and are in conflict within themselves, and I think that makes a lot of difference Absolutely. I mean, well. the re- opposition is in shambles. Yeah. It doesn't have an ideology. It doesn't have an organization to mobilize the people with, an, with the ideology that it doesn't have. And, you know, um, I mean, <laughs> the ideology vote. it doesn't have. I like exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the people who vote for it, complain all the time they vote for it uh, for the opposition for this party uh, because you know they have to you know <laughs> they they don't do it because they believe in the party i mean because uh, i mean there are places uh, uh, that the party has absolutely no organization in in turkey that's that's how are you going to mobilize them i mean uh, uh, so i mean akp in that sense was very successful yeah uh, yeah. But we'll go back to your your belief that sort of this kind <laughs> of um, this kind of loggerheads in these moments may create opportunities for collaboration, opportunities for sort of increased liberalism, and and hope that that's the case. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>